the counts that he's facing are, among others, uh, conspiracy to commit wire fraud on customers, conspiracy to commit commodities fraud, securities fraud, money laundering, defrauding the United States of America, and also a violation of campaign financing laws. So these are some pretty serious charges. Hello, and welcome to The Crypto Brief, a podcast from the Fidelity Center for Applied Technology. Every week, we get together to discuss current events and trends in blockchain technology, tokenization, DeFi, NFTs, mining, and related aspects of the crypto ecosystem. I'm your co-host, Ryan Stubbe, Director of Bitcoin Mining, and I'm joined by Jason Ward, Head of the Blockchain Incubator, Parth Gargava, Product Architect within Fidelity Labs, and Jack Newrider, Research Analyst with Fidelity Digital Assets. Before we begin, just a friendly reminder that this discussion is for educational purposes only and should not be viewed as investment advice or a recommendation for any security or asset. The views expressed are those of the co-hosts and not necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. As we all know, digital assets are speculative and highly volatile and are only for those investors with a high risk tolerance. So let's dive into what's been happening recently. Hey guys. Hello. Good morning. How are you? Good. Getting ready for the holiday week, taking some time off uh, before year end. Hope you guys are too. Yeah, I know for sure. This is this is the last recording of the year. Flew by, huh? It really has. It'll be good to get a little mental reset. But yeah. you never know with crypto markets how much of a break you're actually going to be getting. You should, you should probably knock on wood there, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> did, did it really fly by? Like, I mean, we had Luna, 3AC, FTX. <laughs> There's a there's a lot there's a lot to digest there. <laughs> it's been quite the year. Yeah, I think that um, the year of, of crypto and digital assets being mainstream uh, certainly was realized. The question is, of course, you know, where do we go from here? And I think that's uh, something that we're going to be looking forward to diving into next year. But this year's got a lot of a uh, lot of stories to tell, and and maybe we'll recap some point in the future. But there's a lot going on currently. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, let's jump in. So a couple of things we're going to talk about today. First, probably one of the bigger stories from last week is just everything, all of the kind of updated state around FTX. Obviously, we saw news around SBF's arrest and then kind of subsequent charges. So Jason's just going to provide a recap of where things stand there. And then we're going to pivot to Binance. Um, and we've seen a couple of different stories around Binance in the last week. Obviously, really challenging environment for them and a lot of, you know, fairly bad news, but there still seem to be, you know, having a relatively positive posture. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And then we're also going to finish it off by talking a little bit about Thorchain and an upgrade there. So before we jump into that, though, Parth, what did you try last week? Um, sure. So um, so recently I did a deep dive on subscription-based NFTs or EIP-5643, right? So typical NFTs are called ERC-721s. Those are your PFPs, profile pictures. And so there is an extension to, to those NFTs, which are called uh, subscription-based NFTs. So the idea of these NFTs is that by verifying the ownership of a required asset, you can access some kind of a service or some kind of a reward. And it's really typical to subscriptions. So imagine your gym membership or using Netflix or any, any other sort of subscription, which needs some sort of recurring payment, right? So you could use these NFTs for a month or for a year, and you can decide to renew your subscription or just put it on auto pay, right? So you have these sort of optionality. And typically these NFTs have some sort of an expiration date. Right. So 
the question is that all of this is great theoretically, but uh, is it really being used, right? And so uh, enter this animated series that I've been hooked onto. It's called Stoner Cats, which is a show on cats, uh, obviously, uh, produced by Mila Kunis and Ashton Kutcher. And so if you own one of their subscription NFTs, only then can you watch this show. And so that's exactly what I tried last week, watching a TV show using NFTs. That's neat. So how does it like technically, like what does the process look like for that? Like where do you have to go out and buy it? Mm -hmm. Yep. So you buy it on any marketplace right now. It's on OpenSea and it's like 20, 30 bucks. And uh, one fascinating concept about subscription based NFTs is that uh, what I could do is I could watch a show because it's not really linked to my wallet and I could sell my NFT to Jack and then he could start consuming that content. Part of the first I was laughing about this because I thought to myself, well, how how is this going to take off? And then I really stopped and thought about it for a minute. It's just like, you know, 15 years ago or so, you might go out and buy a DVD, right? You you pay the price, you own it, now you can share it. It's kind of the same thing, but it's actually online. So pretty interesting. Do you own it forever or is it like, does it burn itself automatically? Like I think of like subscription, like subscription is something that you can cancel. There's no recurring payment, right? No, so there is. So, so it's really customizable. So you could choose to enroll in autopay, which means that once in a year you get charged 0.05 ETH. Or you could simply say, hey, you know what, once my, my membership elapses, like that's it, I, I, I want out. And so in that case, the, the NFT burns by itself. It gets out of your wallet, which I think is really smart. And so um, it's kind of, it's interesting to see the entertainment industry really kind of embracing this. So the show came out in July, 2021. And I think they're releasing a bunch of new episodes in the, in, like in the next few weeks, but it's gotten a lot of traction again. So I just, I, I like the idea of like NFTs being used for real things. And that's the utility right there. Was the show any good? It is. I think it's really funny. I got, I got hooked onto it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's transition into the stories. Jason, do you want to start us off by just providing an overview of, of what we saw with FTX last week? Sure. It's a tough story to follow apart. So this one is a little bit more grounded in the regulatory environment as opposed to entertainment. But there are a lot of people who have been following this pretty closely. And you know, we knew about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, people were looking forward to possibility of uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, the former CEO of FTX, testifying in front of Congress at the House Financial Services Committee meeting. But the day prior to that, he wound up being arrested in the Bahamas. And you know, a lot of people were, were questioning what would happen with the hearing. Well, the hearing went on. The current CEO, uh, John Ray III, gave a candid description of what he viewed to be a state of poor controls and, and poor regulatory compliance rules and, and regulation being conducted at FTX previously. But the focus then shifted back quickly to SBF when on the 13th of December, the indictment of eight counts, which he's charged with, was unsealed in the Southern District of New York. And the counts that he's facing are, among others, conspiracy to commit wire fraud on customers, conspiracy to commit commodities fraud, securities fraud, money laundering, defrauding the United States of America, and also a violation of campaign financing laws. So these are some pretty serious charges. And some outlets are reporting that Based on some of these charges, uh, SBF would be required to forfeit any and all property, real and personal, that constitutes 
or is derived from proceeds that are traceable to the commission of these offenses. So, you know, we've already heard SPF saying that he's basically lost most everything. He had some some value left. But, you know, there's a lot for folks to have to dig through from a forensic accounting perspective. So SBF did appear in a Bahamian court. There was a hearing on extradition to the United States. At the time, he decided to fight that extradition and was sent to the Fox Hill prison in the Bahamas. About a week later, here we are today, December 19th, and it's being reported that SBF has changed his mind, uh, no longer plans to fight extradition and may be in a Bahamian court as soon as today. So seems to have been uh, a change in strategy, which you know, leads possibly to him coming back to the U.S. to face charges, not just the federal charges, but he was also charged by the CFTC and SEC and could face some additional state charges. And basically, these charges all tie back to essentially contrary to what he was representing, that um, customer deposits were commingled with assets of, of Alameda and FTX. And those funds were used by Alameda and FTX as if they were their own. And on the SEC side, uh, the charges I read on the SEC site basically refer to approximately a billion dollars of investment funds from 90 U.S. entities, give or take uh, on the, the number. But basically, they're charging that SBF diverted customer funds to Alameda, did not disclose the risk to Alameda, and as a result, was in violation of both the Securities Act of 1933 and the Securities Exchange Act of 1934. So there's a lot of very serious charges that that are being leveled against SBF. And there will be, one would presume, a, a longer investigation. And the question that, that many people are asking is, how might customer funds be recouped? And as a result of some of these charges, will there be any potential clawbacks for either assets or payments that have been made to third parties uh, with the, out of these commingled FTX Alameda funds that could be directly traced back to this alleged fraud. Yeah, I would say, Jason, this is something which is really, uh, this is something which I learned last week, which is exactly what you mentioned, something called as a clawback. So uh, when firms go bankrupt, sometimes the court can clawback funds the bankrupt company sent out uh, in the period leading up to the bankruptcy. And so we know that uh, FDX sent Binance close to $2.1 billion when they cashed out their seed investment. Well, like, what is the probability of these clawbacks happening? Yeah, Parth, honestly, I, I don't know. I, I'm, not, um, I'm not a lawyer. I haven't had experience with those things. But you could say there are examples in the past where companies have gone bankrupt and um, successful clawbacks of funds had been realized. I don't, I don't honestly know, but when you when you look at it, there's a lot of complexity because one would have to, I think, uh, try to tie back the payment to whether or not it occurred during the period of fraud. If the receiver of the funds had any knowledge or would be presumed to have knowledge of the the resourcing of of the value that was sent to them, I, we really just don't know. So I, I would defer to uh, the legal experts on that one. One thing that was pretty striking to me is just the 
how quickly these charges were brought, right? Because I, I feel like with these types of cases, um, you know, it tends to take a little bit longer. Obviously, we've like we previously mentioned, the complexity here is very significant. And I, I guess it just kind of speaks to like the velocity of the events as a whole, right? Even from, you know, that first uh, Coindesk article being published, which was arguably like the first domino to fall to, up, you know, up to uh, FTX filing for bankruptcy, like that all elapsed in a very short period of time. And now I feel like you're starting to see, um, you're starting to see the charges being brought at a similarly uh, rapid pace. Now, I think it's likely that the dust is maybe going to settle here a bit around this now. Um, Cause as we know, these cases take a really long time, generally speaking, it, it was very chaotic in the first weeks. Um, and now I think we're starting to see a little bit more clarity around, you know, how this potentially happened over the course of several years, you know, and then what were the events that ultimately led up to FTX's demise. So there's there's just going to be more more information um, and, and uh, you know, and a much clearer picture, I think, as we move forward here. I, I think you're right. And this, the speed is certainly something that you need to keep an eye on. So some people had speculated that there may have been uh, someone, some FTX insider that was cooperating with authorities. Um, last week, it was reported by several news outlets that there was, in fact, um, a high-ranking person from FTX who had decided to cooperate with regulators. So, you know, the the, the pace of the investigation uh, or investigations, I should say, will likely be affected by the degree of cooperation that regulators get from folks who have uh, firsthand knowledge. All right, um, let's transition over to Binance. Jack, do you wanna just provide us an overview there? Yeah, definitely. So I think the events of FTX that have played out have caused a lot of people to realize if you hold assets with an exchange or with a custodian, you do explicitly have some level of counterparty risk and you should understand you know, whether or not that entity holds your assets, uh, what their operational and risk and compliance and legal uh, implications are. And Binance being the largest exchange uh, has had sort of a series of, of news items over the past week or two uh, that have caused some to, to sort of, uh, you know, ask questions. And, and so I'll, I'll go through sort of the facts or, or the reports that have been out there and then see if anybody has any takes uh, here. So, so first, uh, last week, I think it was on Tuesday, Binance uh, halted withdrawals of USDC for uh, a few hours, uh, reportedly had banking delays um, related to you know, a time of the day where they were trying to move money uh, through the, the traditional banking system in order to be able to, to issue USDC uh, to allow people to, to take assets off the platform. Uh, a report came out last week from Reuters that the US Justice Department is reportedly, quote, split over charging Binance with potential money laundering related charges. Uh, and then there was uh, another set of, of sort of red flags uh, that some are pointing to as Binance coming off of the FTX news uh, explicitly sort of went out of their way to try to perform some sort of proof of reserves to be able to say, hey, here's the, you know, the amount of assets. And I think they did it uh, on, on Bitcoin and Ethereum to start 
BUSD as well, I, I think. Um, and then they were sort of going to push uh, further down the line, uh, supposedly, but start with sort of the largest assets logically. Um, but you know, some looked at the report, uh, that proof of reserves report, and said it sort of raised red flags for a number of reasons, uh, which I think Parth uh, mentioned he wanted to talk about. And then that the proof of reserves auditor, Mazars, has deleted that proof of reserves from their website. Uh, and they also announced a pause on all crypto client work. And I believe there are a few other accounting firms that worked with uh, certain offshore exchanges or custodians that announced that they were putting a pause on their their crypto client work uh, on the auditing side of things. So a number of, of sort of negative headlines. And then if we actually look on chain at the data, I pulled Glassnode uh, and looked at, you know, from their all time high, uh, which was around a month ago of, of Bitcoin on platform, according to, to Glassnode, they had 657,000 Bitcoin. Now they have 565,000 Bitcoin, so around 15% uh, reduction in the, the number of Bitcoin. But we have seen large withdrawals. Um, that's a 100,000 Bitcoin off the platform. But relative to the size of Binance, remember, this is a behemoth of an exchange and custodian, uh, still quite, quite a number of assets on the platform remain, of course. Yeah, I guess I would talk. I would talk about a few big numbers and then maybe go to the uh, proof of reserves audit, right? So, um, so I know there were close to forty thousand bitcoins which were withdrawn, right, when the news broke out, and then there were also two point five billion U.S. dollars worth of stables, uh, stable coins withdrawn off of the Binance platform, which is again kind of weird because a during a price crash, like people tend to deposit more stable coins. Right. And the second part is that people are withdrawing BUSD, right, which is Binance's stablecoin. Like, what are you going to do with it without like outside of the Binance ecosystem? Uh, and so one interesting thing which I thought is worth mentioning is that uh, three of the largest outflows were done by jump trading uh, close to 100 million in ETH and stables. Uh, Winter Mute, which they also withdrew a few million in Bitcoin. And then there was another um, firm. But I think the question here is, uh, what do these big institutional firms interacting with Binance know that that the retail doesn't, right? So that's one question. Um, so yeah, and I mean, you know, like I would, I would just to be devil's advocate, like it, it, they also have risk management programs, right? So that which you know your general retail investor does not does not obviously. So I think you know everyone, given the kind of current market conditions, are you know again assessing their counterparty risk and the level of risk in which they're willing to take on right now. Um, and so it's po it's possible, right, that they just are you know executing risk controls to minimize or mitigate counterparty credit risk. Um, again, just kind of reading some of the signals. Mm -hmm. um, just again, I think it's worth calling out just to be fair um, yeah. with the story. But the the proof of reserves piece, like Parth. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on like the technical side of it, because like we know that, you know, it's fairly easy to produce proof of reserves. But what's more difficult is like proving that those assets are not encumbered or used for some other purpose. And like proof of liabilities is what we're hearing a lot about. Any, yeah. any comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. So so I think a lot of this uh, chaos and confusion has been created by the proof of reserves uh, audit report. Uh, so going into the details, Mazars published a five-page uh, proof, of, proof of reserves. So the Mazars audit specifically excluded all other crypto assets, and they included just Binance's Bitcoin assets and liabilities. The Mazars report says 
the agreed upon procedure engagement is not an assurance engagement accordingly we do not express an opinion or an assurance conclusion had we performed additional procedures other matters might have come into our attention that would have been reported right so this is something which is uh, kind of important here and then um, obviously we saw that mazars has cut ties with all crypto so it's not just finance but it's all crypto including crypto.com kucoin binance and others right and so uh so it's kind of it's it's interesting to sort of have an opinion here because you can sort of speak on both sides right yeah and i i mean i think when you're an auditor like there's a tremendous amount of reputational risk if you provide you know an attestation that it, it implies something that that isn't necessarily what it is right and so i think for them given that the situation kind of across the ecosystem is very fluid right now and i think everyone has a different definition of what proof of reserves is and is not they're probably taking a step back because there's a lot of a risk for them in it being perceived as an assurance which they're obviously saying it's not particularly amongst people who are who are not familiar with what proof of reserves are the one thing that i would that I would just add part you hit upon some very important wording which is that it was an agreed upon procedure to do a proof of reserve so that that doesn't mean it's an audit that means they've got a very defined set of parameters that they're looking to verify. So I think that that might be also contributing to why they're they're choosing to pause any engagement with crypto firms because uh, as Ryan was saying there are different interpretations of what proof of reserves is. It is not um like a, a traditional financial audit. So I think there there's an opportunity albeit a challenging opportunity for um better standardization around what proof of reserves may may constitute. And I think, generally speaking, we can use on-chain data in ways we can't with other markets. So yeah. when you think about that, there's a lot of visibility. Uh, some would say transparency, but you don't know about those other off-chain commitments. I think that's where there's there's a little bit more work to be done. That's that's a fantastic point because uh, I know we have said this before, but you can verify on-chain transactions, right? And so. Binance currently has close to 55 billion dollars in their reserves based on on-chain data. This is a fact uh verifiable verifiable on the blockchain. You can see all the addresses associated with uh Binance close to December 12th, Binance had around 65 billion US dollars and sure there were a lot of withdrawals and now it's close to 55 56. Uh so again goes on to say that once you have these addresses public it's really easy to verify. In, in Parth, you were showing DeFi Llama website and looking at the centralized exchange uh, graphic that's available, which again shows that there's there's a lot of information that's available. It's just not comprehensive or complete. One could could argue because you don't have that liability side. Absolutely. Um, I also see a lot of fud around BUSD. It's called Binance USD. right but it's interesting to sort of acknowledge the fact that BUSD is not issued by Binance right so BUSD is issued by Paxos which is backed by US dollars and treasury bills right and so a lot of times when you talk about BUSD people automatically think about how it's it's just money out of thin air uh, by Binance but it's not and so uh, again there are so many sides to the story that it's really it's really hard to have one opinion uh on Binance. Yeah, in in part I think because you brought it up, 
it, it is interesting that the BUSD digital dollar token had grown from the third largest, I believe, in market value to the second largest, which basically flip-flopped with US dollar coin. Uh, and that occurred after Binance had explicitly stated that they were going to convert USDC deposits into BUSD. So you know, I, I don't know for a fact, but I could assume that if they were to process withdrawals of USDC, they, would they have had to convert some of the BUSD back to USDC? I, I don't know. But that, that is something where we saw for a period of time uh, that number two and number three stable coins in terms of market value had swapped places. But now it appears that BUSD is, is back in the third position. I guess the one last comment that I have before we move on to Thor chain uh, and Thor swaps is that, uh, like Ryan mentioned before, there is no proof of reserve standard, right? So anything which gets pushed out is bound to have some sort of red flags. And so unless there is sort of standardization of how you can show solvency or, or proof of assets slash liabilities, um, I think we still there is still a lot of ground to cover. And the moral of the story, just before we move on, the moral of the story is, Try to know what you're investing in. Try to understand your counterparty credit risks. Um, if you're uncertain, you can certainly uh, try to get some information. But just as we all know, crypto has this theme of do your own research. Not everybody knows how. Um, I would start by literally Googling and, and checking up multiple different sources when you're trying to educate yourself because there's a lot of information out there and it's challenging to, to get sometimes to exactly what you're looking for. Jack, do you wanna you wanna take us through the the Thorchain story? Yes, yeah, so I think a, a quick story to end us here was uh, a, an integration for one of the largest software wallets, Trust Wallet, uh, which was with uh, Thorchain. And Thorchain is a, a Cosmos-based chain that's primarily focused on facilitating cross-chain swaps. So historically, being able to move from Bitcoin to Ethereum to Cosmos to Avalanche from chain to chain. Uh, you you either typically require a centralized intermediary, so you have to go to Coinbase or Binance to be able to actually swap from one chain to another, um, or or you know there's there's been different bridges that have formed to be able to port value from one chain to another. But there's a lot of trust required uh, when there's you know signers for wrapped Bitcoin, for instance, and you're just sort of explicitly trusting them. So it's sort of like introducing an intermediary that may not be economically incentivized to always act in your best interest necessarily, uh, and so. Thorchain has, you know, there was an announcement from Trust Wallet that they integrated Thorchain on the back end. And so Trust Wallet is a software wallet owned by Binance. Uh, it's open source and self-custodial. And so it's a you know, popular way to be able to interact with uh, an Ethereum uh, decentralized application uh, with a you know, self-custody wallet. And what this integration really means is on, on Trust Wallet's application itself, you can go from Bitcoin to Ethereum, to BNB, to BUSD, all in sort of a, a more trustless format with Thorchain routing the, the transactions on the back end. So if you want to go from Ethereum to Bitcoin, you can do it all inside of the application. And I think, you know, historically you haven't been able to do that. And, and it goes sort of towards a few of the themes that I think we talk about time and time again. One is usability. And so usability of going from one ERC-20 token to another ERC-20 token on Ethereum 
Well, that's that's been upgraded before, right? In, tr in Trust Wallet itself, there's integrations that plug into Ethereum DEXs where you could go from the Uniswap token to USDC to Ethereum, but you only could, could swap value inside of that single ecosystem. Whereas now you can go from one ecosystem to another, all sort of within that single application. And I think that it's sort of uh, along this theme of wallets are going to start integrating with some of these cross-chain protocols that just makes everything more interoperable um, and makes it easier to go from one ecosystem to another while reducing or minimizing trust to the degree possible. And then I think the other theme that we talk about is the theme of like bridging and taking a native asset and being able to port value to uh, another you know, separate native chain. And like ThorChain is, is sort of one of those protocols on that mission of trying to reduce the, the need or reliance of trust in, in bridges. And we're seeing issues with things like Solet with the Solana wrapped Bitcoin, um, where there's, you know, there's issues with the key signers there, or you know, wrapped Bitcoin has has seen sort of a, a number of, of um, Bitcoin pulled out, I, I think 35% from their all time highs, in, in terms of a reduction in uh, total Bitcoin that are wrapped in wrapped Bitcoin. And it's just because people are starting to realize that counterparty risk exists if you wrap an asset. Um, and so just, just sort of moving to native cross-chain swaps uh, that are actually like usable. I thought this was an interesting story. Yeah, I guess I would share that as 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 a user of Trust Wallet, I tried using uh, the this exact feature on my Android phone and it's really seamless. Like you could almost, it's almost like using Uniswap uh, on an app, you choose whatever blockchain you want to transfer to, and then it just happens uh, pretty fast. There are there may be some like technical caveats, which we can maybe talk about later on. But um, I think this integration definitely adds more trust uh, to the ThorChain swap ecosystem. All right, I think uh, I think that's a wrap. That's a wrap, definitely for 2022. Um, so thanks everyone for for listening in this year. I hope you you enjoyed. Um, and so we're we're off for the rest of the year, but we will be back on the ninth, and we'll be providing a 2022 end of year recap. And then in the following session, we'll be providing an overview um, of what we uh, think some of the trends for the year ahead will be. And so we definitely encourage you all to to tune in for that. But we thought it's best to let the year actually end before we do an end of year recap because a lot can happen in two weeks. So um, thanks, everyone. Um, happy holidays. Have a great new year. And we'll uh, we'll see you next year. Thanks, guys. Thanks. guys. Bye. See Digital assets are speculative and highly volatile, can become illiquid at any time, and are only for those investors willing to risk losing some or all of their investment and who have the experience and ability to evaluate the risks and merits of an investment. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast was produced by Fidelity Center for Applied Technology, also known as FCAT. FCAT does not offer digital assets nor provide clearing or custody of such assets. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide tax, legal, insurance, or investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation for any security or other asset by any fidelity entity or any third party. Views expressed are as of the date indicated based on the information available at the time and may change based on market or other conditions. Unless otherwise noted, the opinions provided are those of the authors and not necessarily 
necessarily those of Fidelity Investments or its affiliates. Fidelity does not assume any duty to update any of the information. Fidelity and any other third parties mentioned in the podcast are independent entities and not affiliated. Mentioning them does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information is not intended for distribution to or use by any person or entity in any jurisdiction or country where such distribution or use would be contrary to local law or regulation. Persons accessing this information are required to inform themselves about and observe such restrictions. Third-party trademarks appearing herein are the property of their respective owners. All others are the property of FMR LLC. Copyright 2022 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 1040156.